0: The way the reading will work is that uh, Henry will go first, and then Miriam, and then uh, Genevieve. Um, Henry Hoke was a child in the South, an adult in New York and California. He is also the author of Book of Endless Sleepovers. Uh, some of his stories appear in Pank, Gigantic, Winter Tangerine, and Carb. He co-created and directs Enter Text, a living literary journal. And that is Henry. Uh, joined later will be Miriam Gerba. Gerber. She lives in California and loves it. She teaches high school, writes, and makes art. NBC described her short story collection, painting their portraits in winter, as edgy, thought-provoking, and funny. She has written for Time, KCET, and the Rumpus. Wildflowers, compliments, and cash make her happy. <laughs> And uh, Genevieve Hudson is the author of A Little In Love With Everyone. Her writing has been published in Catapult, Hobart, Tin House Online, Joyland, Volume 1, Brooklyn, No Tokens, Bitch, The Rompist, The Cook, uh, The Collegist, and Other Places. Her work has been supported by the Fulbright Program, the Tin House Summer Workshop, and Artist Residence at the uh, Dickinson House, Caldera Arts, and the Vermont Studio Center. So she just travels and gets around. Uh, she received an MFA in creating art, Creative writing from Portland State University, where she occasionally teaches fiction writing and gender studies courses. She lives in Amsterdam. What a great bunch of writers you have, ladies and gentlemen. Please welcome Henry. Hello.
1: Thank you, everyone, for coming. Um, I'm so excited to be here. I, just, I, just, I love these writers. It's great to welcome Genevieve's L.A. and welcome this book into the world. Um, Can't wait to hear from it. Um, So I'm going to start with um, what I'll call two incantations from my story collection, Genevieve's. Um, It just happens to be called Genevieve's. Um, But I wanted to do one incantation uh, for the publisher, which is Future Tense. So I'm going to read an incantation for the future, and then I'm going to read one for Genevieve. So let's start with the future. In the future, Everyone will speak in quotations. Not from Bartlett's, Malcolm X, or Mark Twain, or anything like that. But just when they speak, they'll do it with quote marks. I don't like to do this. See? Even for, hello, or how are you, or I'm headed to the store to get some body lotion, people will use them. This won't be a craze or a cult or anything like that, simply the natural evolution of communication. Because everything will have been said, everything will be emphasized with, well, I did it already. And this will happen gradually, and people won't notice that they're doing it, and years and years will go by, hundreds. And the emphasis will get bigger and bigger until, forgive me, but it's necessary to show you, This becomes a violent action, you see, like, uh, like claws. So evolution of communication will become, well, evolution. The damage people will do to each other with these motions, day to day, talking, scraping. Put yourself there. There isn't a right time of day for rainbows. People are terrified of any things that arch A trip to the emergency room is out of the question. The surgeons, they speak too. And uh, this this one is for Genevieve. When I was little, I wanted my name to be Genevieve. Genevieve was the best name on the playground because when I tripped or got pushed down, it helped me up. And when I was up, the playground was clearer, weirder. I always told the teacher that I was glad to have Genevieve in my class, and the teacher always made sure to tell me there was no one with that name." So I'm going to read from uh, The Book of Endless Sleepovers, which is my first book. Um, It's just a lot of true stories. And um, a big thread in the book is there's a boy named Tom, and he's in love with a boy named Huck, who may be many different boys. In the continuing adventures, Tom and Huck stand on an otherwise empty elementary school staircase and share their first punch. They share it because Tom delivers it and Huck takes it, right in his sunken chest. Huck is impressed. He says, my solar plexus, like it truly hurt. Tom believes this and feels the same blow. The reason for the punch was Tom lost the spelling bee and Huck laughed. What do your dads want people to say when they walk into your house? What do your moms do for work? Huck's dad introduces Tom to sarcasm. Tom looks up and says that he's sorry he ate too many jelly beans before dinner. Huck's dad says, well, I won't spank you this time. The boys always want a treehouse, but the only time they climb to build one, Huck puts his head in a hornet's nest and falls from the tree. His face swells up, and Tom doesn't recognize him at school all week. When the storms come, they build a fort inside. Each tiny room has its own color-coding, its own vibe. Hidden boomboxes pump different tunes. One of the rooms has an upside-down wicker basket as a skylight for the ceiling fan. This is where the stuffed animals live, and the stuffed animals listen to mom's music. In this room, Tom has a thought. He's basically a baby, so it's a baby thought, but it's that he could just die. This is the dream home. He joins Huck in the pitch dark of the thrash metal room and with a flashlight they plan a slip and slide for when the sky clears. Here in the midst of their masterpiece, Huck could grow up to become a killer or an architect, but this is the greatest thing either of them will ever do. And they did it together. Tom can spit farther than Huck. Huck wants a rematch, but Tom just wants to make up secret words for the next time they're in the presence of girls. The parents don't like the two boys hanging out anymore. They tell the school to put them in separate classes. Do you remember the last time we passed Valentine's? What did mine for you say? Jealousy is okay if we're both jealous of each other. You can be jealous of my new two houses, my two Christmases, and I can be jealous of how much glue you can eat. Tom and Huck draw straws stuck down in Coke cans on a canvas. Art class is the period where they can safely feel dangerous where something impacts something something. They'll fill in the somethings later. For now, Tom watches as Huck signs his drawings with an F in place of the H. A dead relative drags Tom deeper south to reunite with extended family. There he meets the real evil boys. The real evil boys who ride four-wheelers through the grass on America's birthday and who blow their hands off with fireworks and guffaw at the stumps. Nothing phases the real evil boys, but Tom knows they're pronouncing cicada wrong. Nobody wants to fall asleep first. When Tom goes to a party alone, he fucks up and ODs and is grounded for the movie premiere of the century. Huck has the tickets and plans a daring rescue. Sneak out at quarter to midnight and I'll come for you. Tom sneaks out his window at quarter to midnight and sits on his front porch, watching the street waiting for Huck's headlights. Tom sits until morning. After school, Huck makes Tom drive as fast as he can to Huck's house. He wants to get there quick, not for mischief, but for Oprah. Oprah says, find what you love in yourself before you try to find what you love in somebody else. Huck says he wants to go on Oprah and champion cereal for dinner. There's nothing nicer than a muted commercial break. Tom asks Huck to prom, you know, as a joke. Huck asks Tom to prom, you know, to fuck with other people. Neither goes, neither does. Weeks later they get to wear caps and gowns, within the big world of ducks. their summer. Imagine you are an adult, sleeping next to whomever, both of you in the fetal position, spooning. It's that time, of course, a little bit night, and a little bit morning. At the split second of waking, when you realize you're holding on to another person, grazing that person's back with your front, in that split second you think it's him. You recoil from shock and pleasure, and then guilt. But it's not him. It won't be him. Not in the city, not in the car, not on the other coast. Not for goddamn decades. You don't know the difference between a sunroof and a moonroof, but you know that a moonroof is better. Tom's dad calls to ask Tom a weird question. Very alone, Tom listens as his dad says, Now you can tell me honestly, I won't get mad, but were you ever in North Carolina, driving? Because I just received a speeding ticket in the mail that has your name on it, from North Carolina. Of course not, Tom says. I figured, says Tom's dad, clearly disappointed. I imagined it might have been you and Huck, Tom's dad goes on. I imagined you two just gunning it down the highway in a convertible, across state lines, like a joyride. Tom imagined that too, but it didn't happen. Thank you.
2: I'm going to read three poems from a chapbook titled Wish You Were Me that was put out by Future Tense. The first poem is titled Fucking Gay. What did my parents think was going to happen when they bought me that Bernadette Peters action figure? Untitled, you don't have to eat shit, just die. Crooked, my vagina needs braces. But first, I'm getting it whitened. Now I'm going to read from my memoir. This chapter is titled, The Problem of Evil. It's okay to be mean. Dad taught me so as he stood at the kitchen counter playing with his watch. I poured a glass of milk, gargled, and gulped. I'd emerged from my bedroom after paging through a child's book of saints. Reading about morality had made me thirsty. I swished milk between my cheeks, warming it, and thought about the book's martyrs and mystics. I admired them especially the girls, but a pattern troubled me. Bad things happened to the saintliest ones. Villagers lit them on fire. Pirates and aristocrats raped them. Barbarians carved their breasts and noses off. It seemed that the nicer you were, especially during the Middle Ages, the meaner the world was. Dad? I said. Yes? Why does evil exist? Just a second, he answered. He multitasked, pondering my inquiry while fiddling with his watch. The lack of a quick response made me uneasy. Through my milk mustache, I blurted, Why does God let so many bad things happen? I breathed through my mouth, waited. Dad looked at me with the same face he made when I questioned the Easter Bunny's existence. In a matter of fact voice, he said, Miriam, think of how boring life would be if nothing bad ever happened. His words felt epiphanic. I smiled and my heart felt very, very warm. It was bathing in permission. What an excellent point. Why hadn't I arrived at that conclusion? Dad's words rehabilitated bad things. His logic made them beautiful, necessary in fact. It isn't just greed that's good. Mean is good too. Being mean makes us feel alive. It's fun and exciting. Sometimes it keeps us alive. W.H. Auden wrote that evil is unspectacular. I totally disagree. Mm Evil is dazzling. If it's done right, mean can be dazzling too. We act mean to defend ourselves from boredom and from those who would chop off our breasts. We act mean to defend our clubs and institutions. We act mean because we like to laugh. Being mean to boys is fun, and a second wave feminist duty. Being rude to men who deserve it is a holy mission. Sisterhood is powerful, but being a bitch is more exhilarating. Being a bitch is spectacular. Being mean isn't for everybody. It's best practiced by those who understand it as an art form. These virtuosos live closer to the divine. They're queers. To observe the queer art of being mean, watch, Paris is burning. Venus Extravaganza, a trans woman who's murdered partway through the documentary, inspires me to be a better mean. In the scene where she's so beautifully lit, she looks like a painting, Venus cries, you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. She embodies her femininity with cruel genius and shakes her peroxided mane. She rubs her fingers down her creamy arms. Her skin's beauty reminds me of good, soft things. Peaches, magic hour sunlight, babies that never cry. She yells, touch this skin, darling, touch this skin, honey, touch all of this skin, okay? You just can't take it. You're just an overgrown orangutan. She pronounces orangutan so that each syllable awakens and develops a soul. Drag queen Dorian Corey also demonstrates the high art of meanness during her interviews. New York learned the extent of it after AIDS killed her. Friends were cleaning out her home, and they found a mummified hustler among her sequins and feathers. Somebody had wrapped his corpse in imitation leather and stuffed it in a trunk. Shrouding him in pleather was perhaps the cruelest part of the violence. When was the last time you were mean for fun? When was the last time you were mean in the name of politics? Have you ever been mean for Jesus? When was the last time you tried to kill someone rather than let him into your club? When was the last time you wanted to kill someone but chose to be a bitch instead of a murderer? Have you been called a bitch? Dad has gotten so pissed at Mom, my sister, and me that he has called us bitches. When he calls us this word, I want to say, Dad, we're just making your life more interesting, remember?
3: Um, Thank you to Henry and Miriam for reading with me tonight, and thanks to Skylight uh, for hosting the event. I'm going to read one story from my new collection, Pretend We Live Here, and the story is called Fast, Fast, Fast. I do not answer the wife's calls. Sorry babe, I'm brushing my tongue, watching an internet Pilates video, getting a hot stone massage. Not really. Really, I'm scrolling through Ted's Instagram feed. Here is a portrait of Ted before she had children. Here a portrait of Ted with her German husband in Barcelona. Here a portrait of Ted with a semi-see-through shirt, a kind of fabric she probably knows the name of. Tulle, chiffon. Thin cotton lawn. Ted is the kind of woman who knows the specific words for things. Ted is the type of girl who blogs about her fashion choices. I pause on the picture, zoom in. I detect her nipples, a subtle shade of chestnut beneath the sheer fabric. I lie to myself and pretend it's subversive for a woman to objectify another woman, but an object is an object is an object and I can't stop looking. Here are many versions of Ted in the just past years. Here, a portrait of Ted sucking a lollipop, tongue of hard candy, sugar in the teeth. I do not answer the wife's calls. Her name overtakes my screen again in sans serif, hoping to FaceTime. It blacks out my Instagram museum. The picture halls of Ted's life become two words, which are the name of the person I love. It says, The wife. She is the kind of woman who's intelligent about all things with one exception, the emotional lives of others. She could care less about that. Her heart is a cold furnace that only I can heat. The wife wants to tell me she just landed in Boston for her international law conference. I text, you there all safe and sound? Sorry, on the phone with curator talking about where to position the meat cage. The wife and I are in an open marriage because she because that is a better arrangement than me cheating on her. Portrait of Ted getting her first tattoo. Caption, I have tattoos everywhere. That's exactly right. Tattoos everywhere. Why does it sound so sexual? Cause she meant it to. You know that. Tattoos cover Ted's arms. They splash color into the crooks of her elbow. A swan opens its wings across her chest as if to fly. A block of cheese sits on her bicep. A chicken roosts on her thigh. Hawk on the fuck finger. Crossbones on her thumb. The word daddy on her neck. Each image has that too fresh patina as if they might still smear. In pictures from a few years ago, Instagram tells me Ted's body was an empty canvas her hair cut an unoffensive blob. Now a red rat tail pendulums down her neck. A ring has been pierced to the gum above her two front teeth. I answer the door when Ted knocks. A gust of winter brings her in. We hug on the foyer under a photograph of a serpent eating a mouse. It's the first time we've seen each other since last month in my studio when she helped me prepare for my upcoming installation Fast, 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 where I'll reenact a contemporary take on Kafka's short story, The Hunger Artist, eating nothing for 14 days while confined to a cage made of raw beef. My only task will be to fill in coloring books with crayons. I was loopy from a 100 hour practice fast, which I broke with a Red Bull and vodka and hot dogs made of wheat gluten. Ted brought me Harry Potter gummy gummy bears to celebrate the fast's end and on the cold tile floor we consumed the newest flavors, vomit, booger, dirt, rotten egg, stinky sock. When she sampled the earwax gummy bear I stuck my tongue in her ear. She looked frightened at first and then pleased. I kept my tongue there twirling, twirling, twirling while she ate her gummy bears one after the other giggling. It's okay, I told her. I'm in an open marriage. I'm not, she said, meaning no more of that tongue in her ear. Ted's coat is snowed on. To see her is to feel my palms go slick. There is a stiffness to her hug. Her her spine stands up under my palm. Why so nervous, I think, suspicious of myself. Be cool. She smells familiar, like a kind of essential oil or something one would rub on their wrist and temples to dissuade a headache from clawing its way into their brain. It smells of a meditation room or an acupuncturist's office. It's the smell of wanting to heal. I want to put my nose against her eye and inhale. I would like to make love to her ear again, where that brand new gauge is stretching out her lobe into a perfect hole-punched O. She pulls away. She brushes snow onto my floor, where it melts into a puddle of water that I will slip on later. What does Ted want? Ted tells me the frozen canals outside make the city look like an Avercamp painting. I roll my eyes at the Abercamp name drop because what a cheesy thing to say. I hate Abercamp, I tell her, and she shrugs. During summer, the city canals stink of something rotten, and boats comb through the ancient waterways, plunging their magnetized arms down in search of sunken bicycles and trash. Once I sat on a bench smoking an e-cigarette, watching a boat drench up the garbage. The boat's limb emerged from the black water with a dead body caught in its grip. The human face was molded and fish eaten, but it seemed to stare right at me. He gave me an idea for a future performance called Death Canal, where I would reconstruct a map of Amsterdam with carcasses of rat vermin dressed in tuxedos where the canals should be. But today the canals are cold, solid things, almost antiseptic. People are walking across them like it's the time of the apocalypse, like Jesus did, walking on water. It seems like an omen. Frozen canals in May? Not good. Ted runs a finger along a ceramic pot that holds a succulent, the only plant I cannot kill. I think you've watered this too much, she says. It looks bloated, and it's shedding its skin. She meets the succulent, which maybe I can kill after all. And thank God she's nervous, which I can hear in her voice. It's like I've always said, there's only room for one nervous person in a conversation at a time. Ted tells me how to care for my succulent and about the problems with her new babysitter, late in rewards screaming toddlers with Netflix cartoons, and she touches all the surface of my apartment. She strokes my Bugs Bunny lamp on my stacks of medium format contact sheets, the bottom edge of my David Hockney original, the T-Mex rug I molded with clay. Touch, touch, touch. Her hands are large and undainty, they are the hands that make things, they are the hands of a mother. I know nothing of babies, have never changed a diaper, cannot imagine one sleeping in my house at night. I picture Ted's living room, populated by small armies of dinosaurs, broken whole wheat cookies, a carpet emitting the faintest odor of sour milk. The maternal side of her stays mostly hidden, but I get glimpses of it now. Here, a tissue for your runny nose, tie your shoes or you're gonna trip, and it sends an electric shock of intrigue to my toes. Let's get out of here, Ted says, while I rummage the cupboard for two cups, the boiler already cooking tea water. I had intended for us to relax on the sofa with women's only oolong, to sit the steaming cups in our laps, touching them to our collarbones, if we were to fold into the cushions for long enough, if the shadows would slip their blue dresses over our silhouettes. Who knows what could happen? Oh, you say, you want to go out? She doesn't want to be here alone with me. I begin to list off the things I've eaten that day in my head, a sign I'm feeling out of control. I should eat less, prepare my body for fast, fast, fast. The only way to last a full 14 days is to start weaning off food now. Teach my stomach to want little and then nothing. But my self-control is non-existent. Cookie, I say, holding up a delft blue tin of butter sweets I bought from the tourist shop down the road. You don't want a cookie? Well, if you want me to take your artist photo, it's better to do it outside and soon. The light, it's... She holds her fingers up in a way that signals okay instead of just saying it. The rays of winter slant towards the window behind her, the perfect texture, the pure touch of blue, fucking artist photos. Had I forgotten this had been the plan? Or had I hoped that she had forgotten? I don't even need new headshots. I love the one I have now where it looks like I'm growling right at the camera, a deranged look sitting in my eye, my upper lip snarled like I wanna bite you. I figured Ted had known what I meant, that my request was just an excuse for us to hang out, maybe become intimately connected. I don't even like her photographs, who does? People should be better at reading minds. I'm serious about that. I open the front door for Ted and make a gesture that means after you, but now that I know she can't read minds, who knows what she thinks I mean. Winter rushes towards us. Ted runs a hand across the flannel of my stomach as she passes through the archway she just entered minutes ago. It's always like this, as soon as we're in a safe zone, a public street, straight girls get all flirty. I'm almost annoyed, but then she turns her head towards me and I can see that she applied makeup. The layer of foundation runs runs across her cheeks, the glimmer of green above her eyes, a hard coal edge to the bottom of her lids. I'm touched by the gesture. Though I'm sure she puts on makeup every day for everyone, there is still something vulnerable in witnessing a woman trying to make themselves more beautiful to the world. You remind me of my best friend from high school, she tells me as we walk. Key word here, friend. Real subtle, Ted. But this is one of the themes I'm interested in my next performance. The way we project connections we've had in the past onto new people we meet. We thread feelings from one person to the next until they are all wound up in the same knotted ball of string, until we can't disentangle who they are from who we expected them to be. I've already come up with a name for the performance, not so many, not so sure. Tell me about your friend, I say. Ted just scrunches up her face, shrugs, sometimes there's too much to tell. I've had many different types of friends. One such friend and I spent every night of high school dry dry humping each other in her twin bed while the constellation Canis Major arranged in plastic stars watched us from the ceiling. That kind of friend, Ted? On the street, swans hobble along the sides of the frozen canals, cast away from their homes which have been transformed into skating rinks. Parrots fly overhead. Exotic green birds that shiver through the air, migrating from park to park. Red-faced men with chicken scars and drunk detached eyes sell hot chocolate to children. They leer. Mothers lead their white-haired babes down to the edge of the ice where they slip and fall, but do not drown. A woman whose chin has disappeared into her neck tries to get someone to buy a pair of skates. When I first moved to Amsterdam, I found it hard to live around so much water. With water, there is never stillness. There is motion, a current. There is, there is motion, a current, somewhere always a ripple, somewhere always a tide. The canals travel like arteries through the city, pulsing and beating and flooding it with movement. Each day I would swim backward through the city's salted sea brain. I would sink into a bathtub until my fingerprints pruned. I would close my eyes to think and feel the black sea bulging over the sides of the dikes crashing in wild windswept waves on the western coast gasping towards land until one day there would be nothing that wasn't covered by the sea's sodden palm. For years I felt as though my brain had drowned. I could not think it was raining in my interior lobe, a constant dreary drizzle. Clouds moved together and wept fog into my hippocampus. I blinked away the condensation which cut everything in a watery blur. I longed for a harsh dry heat. I wanted to sit on a parched desert floor where the sun had cracked open the ground, daring it to breathe. I wanted to burn so bad I got melanoma. I wanted to feel the sun cook the meat of me. The water continued to rise in the city. It rose. It swilled. It leaked out of my mouth. But now that water has sucked condensation from the air, and still the canals into something as hard as a marble floor. Now that ice hang like teeth on the sides of awnings threatening to break off and impale you, now that snow covers everything like a still Siberian plain, I miss the water. I take my first full breath in years and realize that it's typical behavior, really, this insatiable wanting of the thing I cannot have. The wife does not have a powerful sex drive. It's not about sex, open marriage. It's about another type of desire, something deeper than sex, something closer to obsession. You see, I cannot act normally around the people I like, friend or otherwise. I cannot meet someone interesting and just chill. When I like someone, I become a train screaming downhill without brakes. The wife has come to accept this. With Ted, I think the seed of intrigue started on the first night I met her at our mutual friend's wedding reception at the Wester Fabrique. Her husband had been brooding in the corner eating sausage and talking to a graphic designer who considered the logos he made for internet brands art. Ted came up to me because she recognized me from from my It's Not Me, It's Me exhibition last year. The show had been a flop. The papers hated it, and I lost my agent. Even I knew the show was a failure and poorly executed, but I could tell from Ted's coy little expression that she thought it was brilliant. Ted standing there with her plastic plate of crudentes, how just like a woman. Of course she liked the show. She didn't know what good was. She dressed just like everyone else, but better. She seemed to suck all the hope and goodness in the room toward her. I'm serious. Everything was dim compared to Ted. Life seemed to be kicking around inside of her, looking for a way out. Me? Was I the way out? Was I life? Then Ted laughed, covered her mouth with her big hand, and I saw her swallow a word instead of saying it, and I thought, what word? What word did you swallow, Ted? Ted has me lean against the wrought iron railing of a bridge, a scene of ice skaters behind me, idyllic. The worst scene ever for artist photos. Oh, Christ, I will never use this. Smile, she says. Smile big. Her confidence is mesmerizing. Remember that, I tell myself. Remember that if you are confident, people will believe anything to be true. They will love you forever if you just exude a bit more conviction. Ted takes a photo of me looking tickled, a photo of my chin resting on my face, A photo of me throwing my hands over my head like the world is without suffering. Maybe this will be a good photo. Maybe Ted sees me more clearly than anyone else. Maybe, maybe, maybe. I hate that word. Here, she says. She walks right up to me so that I can smell her essential oils. She moves a tangle of hair behind my ear. When she smiles, the piercing on her gum says hello. Just like that, she says. So pretty, you a compliment. How I love those. I want to crawl into her arms. I let her look me right in the eye. Her paragraphs, her eyes are paragraphs typed in a foreign language. If I could, I would upload her expression into Google Translate. What does it even mean? You, she says. You, you, you. You, I say back, and my voice is low and not my own. You. Something is going to happen. Snow falls around us like we're a scene glued to the bottom of a shaken globe. Me, I say, and my voice is mine again. Then we hear it. The noise mechanic I used to share a studio with in the U.S. told me sounds like aliens singing when it breaks. He had an iPhone full of these eerie reverberations. He traveled to Minnesota, Vermont, Alaska to capture the ice shifting and melting and splitting open. It sounds like a lightsaber slicing through the air, not at all what one might imagine. That's how I know what's happening before my eyes even grab the image. I hear the aliens sing. I hear the lightsaber unsheathed and soar. Ted screams. I turn and I look at the canal behind me and I see it, the whole canal filled with people, mothers, children, fat men and bent grandmothers gripped by horror as the ice below them shifts and breaks and cries right open. The ice is teeth inside a jaw that wants to swallow them. There they go, the bodies, into the black water, alive and vicious, and waiting to eat them, waiting to swallow them down that frozen, heart-stopping throat. Oh, God, I think. And Ted takes my hand and holds it to her heart. Her heart is loud against my palm. Her heart is kicking me. I look at her, and she takes my picture. I'm not smiling. Who could smile when so many people are drowning? Thank you.
0: Thank you all the writers for coming up here, coming down and and reading. Um, At this time, I want to invite the writers up to the the stage, if anybody would like to ask questions. (laughs) Get that drink of water and get up here. Here
3: It's also okay if
0: you don't have questions. Do a curtain call. Yeah. Can you talk about
3: your process a little bit? About how these books came about. Um. Yeah, sure. Um, uh, for me, I had been working on some of these stories for a long time, and uh, I was interested in thinking about. the body and home and what those two things mean and how a body can be a home or not and just the way it, it is to feel, um, yeah, your body is a thing moving through the world um, and uh, I was asked to do a short story collection for Future Tense and that kind of gave me the drive to start putting these stories in conversation with each other and building on them. And. Uh,
2: Um, the memoir that I read from, uh, it took me about eight years to write it, eight ish, um, and it start like the, the germ for it was a a piece of writing that I did where I, um, I I described a sexual assault that I experienced when I was 19, but I wrote about it experimentally. So I wanted to write like a a rape narrative, and I wanted to write true crime, but I wanted to do it experimentally. So. I just sort of slogged
1: through doing that for eight years. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I sort of collected experiences for 25 to 28 years in my life and wrote stories about them. Um, and these books sort of came together around the same time. Um, one was sort of the, the sort of fictional world that I was going through, and the other was like the non-fiction world that I was going through. Um, and I made... I feel like it made the fiction one seem a little more realistic, and the non-fiction ones seem a little less realistic, that's sort of how I distinguished them <laughs> in the books. Yeah. I have a question for um, How uh, you live in Amsterdam, how would you say that's affected
3: Question. I, I do think a lot about place when I write. Um, yeah. Right. Um. Yeah. I. Uh, so the question was how I was living in, in Amsterdam affected my writing, um, and I, I I was saying that I I think a lot about place when I write and how um, sort of the climate or the landscape can. Um, really not only like affect the ambiance and the mood or the setting the tone but also just the um the people that make up a place i'm from alabama actually and i am uh working on a novel that's set there and i'm very interested in the way like the landscape and the people that live there uh kind of are in conversation with one another or are influenced and products of each other and I think being in Amsterdam um gave me distance to think more about being what it meant to be um from the deep south in America uh as a queer person and also um it also then made me like as you can see from the story I just read from it also influenced me to think about like that city also as a as a place and um, what it means to be an outsider coming into a new environment. So I think it was you know both of those things. Um, yeah.
0: Or are they two
3: well that was actually that was fiction so I'm not actually a visual artist that was a character that I, that I created um, from the story um, so it, that's what you were asking right if the how the the artist in the story um, yeah but I am interested very interested in the way that um, that art and writing intersect and, and overlap and I think a lot of conversations I've had with my friends who are visual artists has interest, has uh, influenced the way I think about writing and words and, and images, but I uh, myself am not a
1: visual artist. Oh, the
0: song is really
1: open <laughs> 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 Good job. <laughs>